Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 230 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new movie Arrival, based on the short story Story of Your Life by Ted Chang, and we'll also be discussing some of Ted Chang's other work. And this will involve spoilers for the movie Arrival, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Chris Savasco, making his sixth appearance on the show. From 2003 to 2009, he was the editor of Paradox, the magazine of historical and speculative fiction. And his short fiction has appeared in, or is forthcoming in, Nightmare Magazine, Black Static, and Space and Time, as well as in the anthologies Shades of Blue and Gray, Ghosts of the Civil War, and Zombies Shambling Through the Ages. He's also written a psychological thriller about Lady Godiva, a wartime resistance thriller set immediately after the Norman Conquest, and a political thriller revolving around the murder of King Edward the Martyr, all of which he's currently shopping around to agents. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Then next up, we've got Andrew Liptak, who you may remember from our panels on Stranger Things, The Expanse, Killjoys and Dark Matter, and The Magicians. He's the weekend editor at The Verge, and he also co-edited the anthology War Stories, New Military Science Fiction. His writings appeared in io9, Clark's World, Kirkus, and Lightspeed. So, Andrew, welcome to the show. Happy to be back. And also joining us today is Carol Pinchevsky, who you may remember from our panel on the Ghostbusters remake back in episode 213. She's a writer for Blaster and Geek and Sundry, and has also been a writer for Forbes and MacLife. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Time Out New York, PC Gamer, and Lightspeed Magazine. And she's also interviewed celebrities such as Neil Gaiman, Matt Smith, Daniel Craig, and Lucy Lawless. So, Carol, welcome to the show. Hi. Okay, so I'm going to start off with Andrew. And so, Andrew, you wrote a piece for The Verge way back in August called Arrival is Already a Strong Contender for the Best Science Fiction Film of 2016. So why were you so optimistic that this movie was going to be good? Well, it's based on some really good source material. Uh, Ted Chang is one of the best living science fiction authors. And um, if if you haven't read any of his books, or or actually, should I say, his his (laughs) collection of short stories, um, Story of Your Life and Others, uh, you really owe it to yourself to do that. And uh, Story of Your Life, which is what Arrival is based on, is is in that collection. Um, And uh, it's a really fantastic story. Mm-hmm. So was there anything else about the, the director or the cast or anything that also made you optimistic about the movie? Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've been a big fan of, of the director, uh, uh, Dennis uh, Villeneuve. I think I'm going to butcher his name, but Villeneuve or Villeneuve. Um, I think it's Villeneuve. He, he, Villeneuve, okay. Um, he directed a movie I really liked called Sicario, which um, I, I've been watching a couple times recently, and it, it's really really well shot it's got great cinematography it's got a really great story um and uh so just the crew alone was was also what was um really appealing for this film um he's also moving on to to uh, direct the blade runner sequel which i think is filming right now um and on, on top of that it's it's just not a your typical first contact story as i said in the piece you've got war of the worlds battle los angeles edge of tomorrow uh, and this year we had Independence Day. Um, these are all stories where aliens come and blow shit up, and it's um, this is not that type of film. And it, it's it's nice to see something breaking that mold a bit. Yeah. And so, Carol, you were so excited to see this movie that you actually talked your way into an advanced screening of it, right? Tell us about that. Well, I didn't. 
sort of talk my way into it. What happened was I get a lot of PR material and I didn't get an invitation. And I was so excited about this film because I'd been looking forward to it for a while that I, I just called up the PR person and said, let me in, let me in. And, and, uh, she took pity on me and let me in. <laughs> and so why were you so excited about it? Well, I was excited about it, not just because of the cast, which you know, really is stellar, but because I loved Story of Your Life. I thought it was just such a, a poignant, heartbreaking story, and I wanted to see it brought to film, and it was it was translated so beautifully. I, I credit the screenwriter for that. He did such a wonderful job, and, and uh, so it really uh, fulfilled the hopes that I had for the short story translating to film. Mm -hmm. And you were telling me that you were trying to score an interview with Amy Adams and didn't come yeah. through? No, no, sadly, I didn't get it. But I tried. <laughs> <laughs> but you're a big fan of hers? or? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I've liked Amy Adams for years. I mean, I saw her in a Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, and I thought, oh, she's pretty talented. But uh, I kind of fell in love with her in um, a movie, uh, a Disney movie. Um, what the hell is that called? Where she she comes to she comes to the real world after being in a Disney cartoon, and it's actually kind of a uh, a really quirky comedy. Oh yeah, Enchanted. I think it's called Enchanted. Yeah, and she just she blew me away with her charm. And in this movie, she's completely different. She's she's a person who, as we learn in the first few scenes, has lost a child. And so she's just very somber and depressed, and yet she keeps going. So it's nice to see all these different sides of her. Mm. So about Chris, uh, what were you, ex were you excited to see this movie? Oh, yeah. I mean, ever since I first heard that they were you know, going to be adapting it for film, uh, which was, you know, a couple of years ago now, or at least, uh, I was, I was both super excited to see them do that because like everybody that, you know, I think has read the story. I loved it. I love all of Ted Chang's writing. And that is definitely one of my top two or three favorite stories of his. Um, and, you know, I was also really fascinated by, uh, just seeing how they were going to translate it to film, because as, as wonderful a story it is, it doesn't necessarily jump out at you as something that would lend itself to, uh, to being filmed. Uh, it's a very sort of introspective story. Um, and yet it, you know, I agree. I think that the, the screenwriters and the directors and everyone did it, did a, a really fantastic job. I mean, you know, of course, Anytime something like this happens, you know, there's I've got my quibbles, but but overall, I think they really did manage to capture the the essence of of what Ted Chiang was going for in, in the story. Well, right. So, I mean, one way that they sort of tried to make it more suitable for film was really foregrounding the military elements much more so than in the short story. And so that was one thing I was a little concerned about watching the trailers. There seemed to be a lot of soldiers and helicopters and, and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. What did you think about? Was were you at all concerned about that at all, or how did how did that play out for you? Yes, I was actually a little concerned about that. And if anything, I think maybe it it, it was a little top heavy the movie where we were getting so much of the military. Um, but in the end, I think it it added a, a, a an, an additional layer to the story that I think fit well enough with the themes that were already being explored that, um, you know, I, I, 
I didn't find it distracting or as distracting as I thought it was going to be uh, initially. Um, you know, I sort of warmed to that as as the movie progressed. So I think I think it was fine. Okay, so how about Carol? What did you think of the trailer and the soldiers and stuff like that? Well, actually, I did not see the trailer because I am determined, and I'm working on an essay about it right now, I am determined to never see a trailer for a movie I know I'm going to see. So since I knew I was going to see it, I did not see the trailer. However, uh, as for the soldiers, that, that the, there were some scenes with um, military people going rogue that, that wasn't in the original novella. Uh, or is, is it a novelette? I think it's just a short story. Yeah, it's it's definitely not a novella. It's it's either a short story or a novelette. Right. It's a novelette. Right. Okay. So in the original novelette, there wasn't this this military incident uh, that takes place in the movie. I don't want to give too much away. I know this is a spoiler episode, but uh, there there wasn't too much of an emphasis. But what there was was kind of annoying, actually. <laughs> like I think it's it felt like it was kind of pushed in there. You know, as if the screenwriter were told, like, oh, no, 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 we need more action. We need more action. Mm. So mm-hmm. that scene seemed a bit, those scenes seemed a bit inserted to me. Yeah, so I, I guess I'm going to have a lot more to say about that. But I want to sort of focus on some of the positives of the movie um, before we get too much into that. Because this movie is, I mean, I think we should, we all agree, right? This movie is terrific. Does anyone think this movie wasn't terrific? No, no. right. Everyone thinks it was terrific, <laughs> right? There's a lot to love in this movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I really loved how in fact it it didn't contain a ton of explosions and yet managed to be really engaging and exciting and wondering oh my god what's going to happen next what is going to happen next and i i had this wonderful experience where i happened to be remembering the short story sorry novelette because i i hadn't read it in a while when i saw the film so i was remembering it as this this movie about memory is playing out and um, that was really a, a cool moment for me. Like, oh, right, I'm remembering things that haven't happened yet because <laughs> they're, they haven't yet played out on screen. So, yeah, I, I loved this movie. Yeah, and so, I mean, and they, they did some nice, interesting things that weren't in the story, right? Like the whole thing with the weird gravity-shifting corridor. Um, I don't think that was in the story from what I remember. No, it wasn't. Um, and I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and yeah, just like visually, I thought it was really cool. I mean, the aliens are very much like they're described in the story, um, but I thought they were really cool. All the, like their weird sounds they make and the, the weird mist and the way they squirt their little, uh, you know, symbols in the air and things, all this stuff was just so, was, was really well done. Which, which also, which also strayed from, I mean, that was not how they did their writing in the, in the the story either, but I, but I agree. I thought that visually that was much more engaging. Than... How, did, how did they do it in the story? You know, as far as I recall, they just wrote the things because, because part of what, um, one of the, the, the ideas that was, was explored in the film was that, I'm sorry, in the, in the story was that she was at first bothered by the fact that she was only seeing the, uh, the alien writing once it was completed and they would turn the, the, you know, whatever they were writing on the stylus around to show her. And she made a point of asking them, can you let me watch you as you're writing it? And it was only when she did that in the story that she realized that they were making certain pen strokes 
that encompassed more than one word in the sentence. So they clearly had to have known how the entire design was going to end up, you know, before they even started writing it. And that was sort of a, a breakthrough for her in, in exploring the language. So they were just writing it, I, I guess, with their appendages, somehow with some sort of writing implement on a tablet or something. Hmm. See, Andrew, do you want to say anything else about what you liked about this movie? Yeah, um, I, actually, I'll, I'll jump in first and say it actually is a novella. I just looked it up. Oh, really? And, um, oh, okay. Yeah, it was it was done in uh, written in, originally in 1998 in uh, Starlight 2, which was edited by uh, Patrick Nielsen Hayden. Um, one of the things I, I found interesting is that the, there's definitely a military presence in the film, which the story doesn't have. But keep in mind that the story was written in, in 1998 when they're really it was really a whole different world from what we have now. And I, I think that the, what the film did is it updated it nicely for what would be, I guess, expected nowadays. I mean, every, every um, alien invasion or alien arrival first contact movie has a military element to it. And I think that if you weren't to include that, it would be a little bit strange. And I think you'd have a lot of people sort of questioning that in, in uh, after they, you know, as they get out of the theaters. Um, no, but I'm you gonna, also sorry. I'm going to say, Andrew. I mean, the the military is in the story or in the novella. Uh, it's just really, really not, not to the same extent. It's that really, the, that yeah, they really. Are in the but film. I mean that the um, the Forrest Whitaker character, he is in there, yeah. and they mention like the they're they're, they're like on a, in a army camp in a tent and stuff like that. But it's uh, it's the kind of thing like I, I didn't remember it at all from when I orig- originally read the story. Yeah, and I I think that the way it's portrayed in the film, it, it really signifies this this post nine eleven. Um, sort of stance that the mil- or, or sort of expectation that you have with, with the military. I mean, you have you have very modern um, uh, fatigues and, and weaponry being used and, and things like that. So I I think that I I think that's just a, a product of the time. You know, since the the story has been put together, I don't I don't know if it had been written last year. I don't know if it would be any different. You might maybe uh, Ted would have done some made some slightly different choices. I don't know. Uh, but that, that was the only sort of thing I noticed with that. But it, I didn't, I didn't find that it really distracted all that much, especially because it seemed like you had a, the military was basically just acting as a security force and you had a whole group of scientists working on the linguist side. Um, rather than, you know, the military, you know, they, there were some people who were really sort of hotheads about it and saying like, you know, well, we need to make up strong force. It was mostly around, you know, let's find out what they're saying first and then we will make a determination later rather than shoot first and ask questions later. So that, that's what I, I took away from it when I was watching it. I, I thought that was a really nice departure from what you usually see in, in theaters. Well, it's funny because I, I just went back and looked at the story um, after having seen the movie. And it's 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 very striking going back to the story now, how calm everybody seems and how, uh, you know, measured and relaxed and everything whereas in the movie they're all like freaking out all the time yeah the scene i really liked was when she walks into the classroom and everybody all, you know all the kids are on their phones and she's like well would, do you want to share anything and they they say well do, you better turn the news on i just i, I liked how they um you, you know that you learn of an alien invasion through you know cable news <laughs> yeah instead of being texted yeah. Well, well, actually, well, they, they were being texted. They were they're texting back and forth. But you have this. She, did, um, she didn't learn that way. She, no, she didn't learn that way. So she, she was sort of, you know, this this, um, uh, you know, this that's that's the one way you learn from it rather than you know through Facebook. I know nowadays, if aliens landed, the first place I would hear about it would be like somebody saying like, "Oh my god," on Twitter. <laughs> actually, the thing about that scene that that kind of 
left me hanging was she starts off and says, oh, uh, let's let's talk about how Portuguese is different from other Romance languages and we never learn, like, oh, God, now I'll never know. <laughs> Stupid aliens always ruining everything. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but I... I actually loved the language uh, that the heptapods used. I mean, I actually thought that was one of the coolest things about mm -hmm. this film. I mean, not just because it's squirted out and into this inky cloud, but because it looked like an indecipherable but very real language. It looked mm -hmm. like that there was there there that you know you just couldn't couldn't figure out. So I really enjoyed that. I almost wish there were more of it. Yeah, I wonder if they'll have like a heptopod language guide like they have for Game of Thrones and, you know, Klingon and stuff like that. Or uh, Doctor Who, the Doctor Who written language, also based on circles. They reminded me of uh, coffee rings. <laughs> but no, I totally agree with you, Carol, that it did, they did a really good job of making it seem like it was a real language. And yeah, all the linguistic stuff, I mean, I'm not an expert, but it all seemed really, uh, really well Really convincing to me, at least. Uh, how about Chris? You want to add anything? Yeah, no. And I mean, I think, again, it, it sort of goes without saying, but I think a lot of that has to be, you know, has to be credited back to Ted Chang, too, because I I mean, that was one of the things that gave me my sort of sense of wonder as I was reading the story was all the, you know, he sort of intersperses certain uh, subsections of the, of the story with like, you know, sort of... Uh, you know, little, little paragraphs about the way language works. And, and, um, it, it's sort of a, a trademark of his, I think, in a lot of his stories. I mean, he often does it with mathematics or science or whatever, but he manages to bring these like super interesting, super cool ideas, um, to play and to bear in the story in a way that really, um, feeds into the story and the characters and, and all the rest of it. But yet, makes those otherwise really complex concepts and ideas accessible to me in a way that, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm generally not very mathematically inclined, but when I read some of his stories and the same thing with the language stuff in this one, it's like, you know, I, I have so many moments where I'm almost like physically sitting back from the book stunned as like something suddenly clicks and I'm like, Oh, I get that. That's so cool. And, and I think that's really something that, that he, you know, Ted just excels at. Yeah, the this, this, this story is written from the point of view of a world-class linguist and is completely convincing to me that, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, and, and, you know, uh, uh, Ted, I guess, is famous for writing, you know, one story a year or every year or two or something and doing tons and tons of research. And that, that definitely shows in this story. I don't know how much research he did on language and linguistics and things, but it seems like an awful lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in... Um... Tower of Babylon. I think that's what it's called, Tower of Babylon. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, uh, I learned how to build a ziggurat pretty much. <laughs> Considering the research he put into it about the you know, the building of the fire and the, the laying of the mud, like wow, yeah. Yeah, he he's so detailed and yet never boring. No. So if I if I knew that trick I'd be <laughs> I wouldn't be writing nonfiction. <laughs> And and it never feels like info dump. I mean, it, it always works so organically in the story, um, which is, you know, just a, just amazing. 
don't know if anyone else had a chance to go back and look at the story after seeing the movie, but a lot of the thing, a lot of the dialogue in the movie that I didn't remember from the story is actually taken straight from the story. So, like the thing about kangaroo being a, mm-hmm. a misunderstanding that's straight out of the story. There were a bunch of bunch of really cool things like that. Uh, Andrew, you want to you want to throw it? You want to add anything here? Um, no, I, I haven't actually had a chance to reread the short, uh, sorry, the novella since I've I've seen the movie, but um, it, that doesn't surprise me, I guess, it's just because the dialogue in the, the film was it was really good. I, it was a lot better than what you usually get in a in a you know science fiction blockbuster. So uh, it's it's nice to see them adapting the you know adapting the the short the, the, I keep saying <laughs> the, the novella. Um, but, you know, keeping it fairly close and actually borrowing from it rather than just taking a concept from it and then just running with it. Cause you see, you see a whole bunch of movies like that, you know, like they, they take the title and then they say, all right, we're going to change all everything else and we'll, we'll sort of go from there. So it was, it was nice to see that it was, it was, uh, it, the movie felt pretty close to what I remember the, the story being. Uh, even if it wasn't exact. Well, right. I mean, that's something that really strikes me now is that it used to be that you could basically take it for granted that if any really brilliant work of science fiction were adapted to Hollywood, with a couple of rare exceptions, not only would it be terrible, but it would be terrible in a way that completely made a travesty of the whole point of the story or the whole, you know, what made it interesting in the first place. And I feel like we're finally getting into an era where you can go to see a movie based on a Ted Chang story, for example, and actually feel optimistic that it's not going to be a travesty. Um, and that's a really good feeling for me. Can we also just take a second and just marvel at the fact that it's a movie based on a Ted Chang short story? Right. Um, I mean, that's that's just a sentence you, you wouldn't have heard, you know, 10, 10 years ago, just because, you know, the, I don't think science fiction cinema was really as as close to the literary world, but also it just wasn't looking from really in-depth material. I mean, there's a lot of great short stories over the years that would make great films, but you never really saw the effort made to, for people to try to adapt them. And, and now not, not so much in film, but with, with the TV world, you have a lot of these books being adapted and being adapted fairly closely. Um, so just seeing sort of one one of the communities sort of break out in this really high-profile way is just astounding to me, and it's also just fantastic. So do we credit Gravity for this? Ooh. Well, Gravity wasn't based on any short story yeah, or anything. it was still a, a, a science fiction film that was intelligent. Yeah. And didn't talk down to its audience. I mean, I think I consider that the, the first of the uh, the modern science fiction films. But it could be mistaken. What came before Gravity that we could actually be proud of? Uh, Moon is a really Moon, good, good sorry, example. Moon, you're right. Um, Moon. Um, I think District Nine is another really great one. Um, I, I would also throw out Elysium, but I think I'm probably the only person. Yeah. <laughs> that, like I, I love that movie. I think it's it's a great, great, great film. But um, there, there's there's this handful of of short stories that are just, or sorry, uh, these these films that are really great. Um, that I, th- I think Arrival really stands up with. Um, Gravity's one. I think Ex Machina is another one. That it's really smart. It's got really great actors. Um, even, even to an extent, Interstellar was was really quite gr- good, even if it had some of its some flaws. Yeah, yeah, definite flaws. <laughs> but very, but very good. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, to to continue on what we were saying, like I think one of my favorite 
uh, scenes that was literally almost taken word for word from the book was the whole conversation with the daughter about she's trying to remember the term zero sum game. And, and that whole scene not only was taken word for word from the book, but I think it was really important that they chose that scene because that really was sort of like the, every, that was the crux of where you started to finally, it, it was when in the story, it was when you first started to get the hint that, oh, wait, is she seeing it? Like, is she, are her thoughts going back and forth to, to a different timeline? And, and I think that it was important that they, they reproduce that scene in the film. And then, and then just to, to sort of, approach it from the other side, I think one of my favorite lines in the movie that was not from the book that I th think worked really well to um, to bring out Ted's underlying story was uh, when she, when Amy Adams is, is hugging Jeremy Renner at the end and says, I forgot how good it felt to hold you. And that is not a line that she says in the story, as far as I recall, but it was just brilliant because it really got across the idea that future events were something that she could think about using memory. Um, and I, I, I just thought that was a, a fantastic line for her to say. That, and that was something that, as far as I recall, was just added by the screenwriter. And I, I did kind of wonder about the line she said when she said, my ex was a scientist. Mm -hmm. Like, was she talking about an ex-boyfriend or was she remembering her future husband? Right. Um, the, there's there is sort of one more thing I want to say about about the transition from short story to film in in the um sorry novella to film uh it, the story was more about uh breaking down the logistics of language and when I say I would have liked to have seen more about that I I really would have liked to have seen more about that that kind of nitty gritty that makes science fiction so fun for me um but they left out a bit about physics, which I was surprised yeah, about, yeah. because, you know, hmm. what science fiction film doesn't love physics? I mean, that's the other reason why I love this movie. It's a, a science fiction film where the science is linguistics, and how often do you get to see that? I mean, sorry, it's probably why I love the story and the movie. Well, well I, the, the scene I was really surprised wasn't in it was the part where he draws the beam of light hmm. being refracted right. into the water. Uh -huh. I'm I'm sort of baffled that wasn't in there. I don't know. Maybe it just like was too hard to explain, like or it took too long to explain in the film or something like that. I would I wouldn't be surprised if they had filmed it and then cut it or something because it it seems like a really odd omission to me. Really, and and it it was very it was three drawings in the book, and we got it. I mean, the audience got it quite clearly. I think maybe the the, the missed opportunity for them to have included that was it. it, it Perhaps the clumsiest part I thought of the film was the Jeremy Renner voiceover where all of a sudden you just get an info dump. And I mean, I think, you know, just in, in terms of the film, it felt clumsy. I mean, I liked the information that we were getting because they were drawing from the information from the book. But that would have been a perfect place for them to have him. If he was going to do that voiceover anyway, you could have had little diagrams being drawn on the screen while he was talking about them. And, and you could have gotten it in there. I think that was probably a missed opportunity. Yeah, that po that stuck out quite a lot for me. I thought it was it was it just all of a sudden it happened, and I was like, "Oh, okay, we're we're going with this." I, I sort of was expecting another one, right? And I think that it would have been a more a more effective tool if they had dropped another one in there at some point, right? Uh, returned to that format, yeah, but, yeah. Because th this definitely wasn't a film where they explained a lot to you at all. Um, it, it definitely requires the audience to pay attention and. Uh, 
I think that if they had if they had done another one, it might have diluted a little bit. But even having one in there in the first place was a little strange. But actually, the the movie does explain something that isn't in the book, which is the reason why the heptapods leave. That's not actually explained in the in the sorry book, the the novella, because they just decide to leave, and they and they evaporate, and that's it. <laughs> So I really do like the fact that we get an explanation it's one that makes sense in the context of the story. Well, and also, um, I don't think that I, I really was moved by the idea that their relationship broke up because she had not told him that their daughter that they were going to have was going to die. Yeah. Um, and I don't think I don't think that was in the story. Maybe it is. No, that. no, it wasn't. No. And that was also a great moment. Yeah, that was. Because she's explaining it to a little girl in a way that makes sense to her and to us. Because just at the end of this movie, I was just emotionally devastated. And I looked over at my girlfriend. There were just like tears streaming down her face. She actually said as we were walking out that this is one of her five favorite movies of all time now. Um, but I assume everyone was just <laughs> emotional at the end of this movie. Yeah, absolutely. But I think mm -hmm. I was more emotional with the story. Because yes. I remember when I first read it, I that was tears streaming down my face. And here I, I just had a lump in my throat, which is still a great emotional reaction. But I, I think I was hit harder with the novella. I keep calling it story, short story book. Sorry for my mixed up terminology. Now you're just seeing it from all different perspectives, Carol. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think if you go into the film having, you know, n knowing the story, it, it's going to, you're, you're bracing yourself a little bit for what's going to come. And so it still is an emotional uh, experience, but it's, you know, you, 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 you have your guard up a little bit more. So I think, it, yeah, I agree. I, I definitely got way more emotional when I read the story uh, the, the first time than I did at the, at the film. Uh, Andrew, do you want to add anything? Um, I, I liked what they did with the film and with that revelation that like, that sort of comes right at the end. Um, do you want to have a bit, do you want to make a baby? And, and that, that hit me pretty hard, um, knowing that she knew exactly what the future was going to hold and, and sort of just trying to comprehend that as a parent, um, who has a, a kid that's who's three years old. It's just the, I've been sort of going a couple ways on it. It's like, you know, on one hand, I can see where uh, Renner's character was, you know, would look at the daughter differently afterwards, after after she told him what was, you know, what was going to happen. Um, on the other hand, I can also see why she would still go forward and have the child because, um, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't trade those years for anything, even if they're cut short. And I thought that was a particularly powerful scene and I, i'm still sort of trying to process it. it it was a very at times it was a little difficult to to watch just knowing what would happen and, and trying to comprehend that as a parent i mean did she really have a choice though well that's kind of what the story <laughs> was about the novella yeah. was about you know free will and does she have it and she decides yeah i'm going to do this anyway knowing how it's going to end i guess she doesn't actually say it's better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all, but that's the feeling I got when I read it. Yeah, the, the film doesn't really make that all that clear, because it, it, it does seem to be a very deterministic 
sort of thing. But at the same time, there were points where you you definitely realize that you know maybe she can make certain choices, um, especially when, sort of when she's flashing back to the general, uh, the um, the Chinese uh, general. Um, and I I think that there's definitely some leeway for, with how she, you know, how her decisions alter things. But um, yeah, it it was e- either way it goes, it was still a pretty powerful scene for me. Yeah, the um the thing in the with the Chinese general that wasn't in the story either, and no. uh, also um the daughter Hannah dies in a climbing accident mm-hmm. in the story. I don't know why that was changed. I think it was more powerful. Um, it's just probably maybe it's just a little bit easier just to convey. Um, it, well, actually, while I was watching the film, I got a I got the sense of you know like the scene from Up. Um, that whole first yeah, opening yeah, sequence. Absolutely. That's what it reminded me of. Is it, it's this? Um, I mean, I, I think that it's it's probably even it's probably a worse thing to see a, a, a child you know waste away with due to cancer or, or whatever disease it was um, than to just have it suddenly happen. I mean, I I hope I I would never ever have to face either of those, but I, I just I can't imagine which would be worse. Right. I think changing it to a, a an illness like that served a couple of purposes, and one is that. You just have to show a scene of her with her head shaved in the hospital dying. Whereas if it <laughs> yeah. was like showing her like climbing and falling off a cliff, it would just take a long time. It would be hard to give it the same, you know, quiet dignity. Um, and, and the emotional impact is because because uh, Amy Adams' character knows that it's going to happen. I mean, it, it is a a thing that she would, um, you know, you you would sort of a disease happening is not this sudden thing it, it is a thing that you inti- you can anticipate whereas a climbing accident is is just that it's an accident you can't really anticipate i mean she well, can anticipate well yeah what, what i was going to say too is that if it was a climbing accident i think it would just raise the issue of can she prevent the climbing accident and that would get into this yeah. whole thing that is not serving this story you know yeah and, and she did say something about it being an incurable disease um right so well you know that gets to both the climbing thing and and to get back to General Shang, um, because I think both of those things kind of tie in in a way, because, you know, I don't think that I, I think we're supposed to assume that these events, or at least the way it's conveyed in in the story more so than in, on the film, these are not events that are subject to change because they're things that have already happened, even though they've happened in the future. But it's just sort of like all these things, you know, she 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 now knows what has happened. It's not a question of like, can something different happen? It's already a done deal. Um, but 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 to get to just to move back to General Shang. See, I, I feel like that might have been one of the film's missteps. So this is, I guess, getting into one of my quibbles. But I, I feel like it's one thing for us to be given this idea that, um, you know, time is, is, is nonlinear in the way that the heptopods experience it. And now she's experiencing it that same way. But with, with the general giving her that message to tell him over the phone, um, it, it, it kind of almost creates a paradox because it's, it, in other words, like, you know, she can only have given him that message if already at that point in time he had told her in the future what the message was, but what reason would he have had to tell her that in the future unless he'd first gotten the message? So it's a, it, it, it muddies the waters of, I think, what what's going on in Ted's story by making it not only seeing the events 
non-linearly, but making them somehow interdependent upon each other, going backwards and forwards, which I, I just think it's, a, it's an unnecessary complexity that sort of takes away from the already, you know, what was a hey, wow, cool factor that was that was there in the, in the source material. And, and, and it just, I think it raises more questions than, than it answers for, for no good purpose. But don't you think that was kind of what the zero-sum game part also did? Uh, well, but for the zero-sum game, she's, it's a memory that she has from her linear past that she then tells her daughter in the future. But to have something from the future oh, right, right. affecting the past, that doesn't seem to make sense in the context of, of, of the rest of the story, unless there's something else going on, which I don't think we need to have something else going on. You know, I don't know. It, it, to me, that, that, that there's a sort of logical inconsistency there. Or if, if it's not an inconsistency, then it adds some other layer of complexity to the film that I don't think needs, needs to be there. I don't know if I'm ex- ex- expressing myself. No, no, because I, I agree with you, Chris. I mean, I, I actually found the scene where he whispers to her emotionally. It, it really worked for me, but... I agree with you. Like I had some of those same concerns because I think that this movie is really is sort of an odd marriage of a Ted Chang story with some kind of like familiar Hollywood movie elements. Right. And right. they're done really well, but they're nevertheless familiar Hollywood movie elements. And to the extent that I, I had that I didn't like things in the movie, it was mostly the the fact like oh, I feel like I've seen this in other movies and I wish that they had done something a little more original. Like I, I didn't particularly like the way any of the military characters were portrayed. They just seemed to me uh, to just always act in a um, gratuitously stupid way. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I think the movie would have been more interesting if, if the military characters had been smarter, you know, or more um, wise. I never like it when military people break the chain of command because mm. they don't do that in real life or if they do there are really serious consequences and so here are you know a bunch of guys going off and and threatening the aliens uh and by the way the fact that they were prodded on by a, a an am right wing uh, yeah well he, it was like rush it was obviously rush limbaugh I mean. yeah that that just really uh uh that really grated on me <laughs> actually but uh so i I didn't like it when military people don't act like they're actually in the military. So that that part bugged me. I think, for the most part, I mean, I think it is, isn't it their job, really, to uh, to think paranoid and think, okay, what what is going to happen if they attack? Okay, but I, I want to go back to the protocol thing, because that's really important to me. It, it always bugs me in movies where you, ha- you have characters in some sort of like space suit or hazmat suit or something in some dangerous environment, and they just take it off for no apparent reason. <laughs> well, I mean, as a linguist, I guess it almost makes sense, because, you know, you kind of need to see lips well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, it, that that actually didn't bother me because I didn't feel like it was for no reason. I mean, I, I I felt like she she was trying to at that point get across their individuality so as to get into the idea of personal names. And I, you know, if they all looked basically the same in these orange suits, she wanted to kind of distinguish herself from from the rest of them. And also, you know, she they made a point of having her look at the little canary in the cage Which and. Yeah, and, and, and they had established earlier in the conversations with the doctor that 
it was basically just an abundance of caution that they were wearing these things anyway, that there was really no particular danger that the, the radioactivity levels were not a threat. And so, you know, it's not like she took it off in, in, in the vacuum of space or something. You know what <laughs> I mean? She, it was, I, I, that didn't really bother me because I didn't think, I, th- I thought there was very little risk and, and a lot of potential reward and it did pay well, off. Well, in the well but the risk is that she's disobeying the orders from the military, like in such an important once in a lifetime situation. It just seemed totally Hollywood to me. I don't know. Andrew, you're going to have to break the uh, break our <laughs> fog jam here. I, I think it is a bit of a cliche just because it, it does happen so often is that somebody will, I, I didn't really get the sense that it, I, it didn't bother me because it's, a, it's somebody taking a spacesuit off where they shouldn't. It, it's more of a, just sort of a protective thing. It, it um, what I what I got a little bit more out of the scene that I I thought was pretty funny is that both Amy Adams and Jim, Jeremy Renner's characters had taken the spacesuits off, but the army guys behind them were like, "Nope, we're we're keeping these on. <laughs> you guys are confident. We're not." <laughs> and then just the other thing I want to bring up with the soldiers is that like general the the Chinese general was talking about uh, attacking the alien ship if they are not out of, out of Chinese territory in twenty four hours or something like that. And it just to me this is another Hollywood cliche that. Like, you know, 21st century human armies could fight interstellar aliens, <laughs> which is completely ludicrous beyond all imagination, right? And yeah. when when the uh, talk show host said, "Hey, sh- let's you know shoot across their bow," like they came from space, they came <laughs> yeah. from so far away, it is incomprehensible. Holy crap! What can you possibly do to threaten these people? Yeah, so so not only is their technology probably at least a thousand years in advance of ours, but they're in orbit. All they have to do is take a medium-sized asteroid and drop it on the Earth and destroy the whole <laughs> planet. I mean, you you have no no chance of victory in this sort of situation. And I'm a little bit concerned that so many that no movie that I can think of has ever acknowledged this reality. That if aliens ever actually do come, our military leaders are not actually going to understand this reality because they've just seen all these movies where they're like, oh no, we beat the aliens in every movie. Let's go for it. So. I think for the security of Earth, we need... Yes, absolutely. Damn it. That, that said, if, if we do have extraterrestrials ever decide to stop by, I can not I can totally see people saying, well, let's get the guns and shoot them. <laughs> it's not, a, it's not a, um, an incompatible thought. I, although I will just, to play devil's advocate, does the... Or not devil's advocate, but the, I think in the movie, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there was actually a ship in orbit. That's just from the story. No, there wasn't. There's was just the, the twelve shells, right? And in, in, in there the were more in the book, uh, there were more. Yeah. And also in the book, in the novella, they also do talk about there being a, some sort of command ship in orbit, but that was not in the film at all. No. Well, but they, no, but I mean, they okay, they could they could be in orbit. I mean, I don't know. It seems like maybe they were even like traveling through hyperspace or something. I assume that's what was happening when they were sort of disintegrating at the end or, mm. but mm. you know, my, my point is that if, if, if they can get from one star to right, another right. in a spaceship, they can destroy the earth. No problem whatsoever. Yeah. You know, what's funny is, you know, this is a science fiction movie. And so you always expect a little bit of, you know, hand waviness and stuff. But, but the, the funny thing is, is that all of the sort of science fictional elements in the movie, they didn't bother me at all. They felt, for the most part, fairly, you know, as, as grounded in reality as those sorts of things could be. The stuff that felt hand wavy to me was the sort of global politics and the, and the, uh, just the sort of diplomacy going on. I, 
it's it just seemed like there was all these you know statements being made. The, the, the stakes kept getting escalated for reasons that were never particularly clear to me. It was like, oh, this guy's going to do this, this guy's going to do that. The Pakistan's doing, they're going along with Sudan. I, I I never quite understood what all the conflict was about. I mean, you know, sometimes I understood where it was like, yeah, we're giving him an ultimatum. You've got twenty four hours to leave, but. It, it, that was all actually very hand wavy to me. And it just didn't, that didn't ring true to me, which is weird because that was like the least science fictional element in the, in the, in the film. And of course, again, that's not from the book at all, but I don't, did anyone else, did that bother anyone or? No, I, I no, I didn't have a problem with that at all because, you know, if you look at the current situation today, I, I find that uh, a lot of us aren't willing to talk to each other. And I just thought that, that was. Oh, the, the not willing to talk to each other I got, but it's just the, it, it was, it was the actions that everyone was taking were inscrutable. Not only just the, the, the foreign nationals, but the, the, uh, even within the, the command structure of the United States, it was like, wait, so now we're, we're abandoning this post, but we're moving somewhere else. I, I don't know. I, I just never quite understood why any of the actions were being taken that were being taken. Um, I think my, my take on it was that. I think that there was sort of a broad assumption that if, if somebody attacked, uh, if China went and attacked their shell, the response back against everybody right. was imminent. So that's that's why the U.S. decided to, to pull back. I, I thought the politics were were pretty, you know, pretty decent, and, and you know, I, I think it's really kind of notable that we have a film that is about you know trying to unify the, mm-hmm. you know humanity, you know, this week of all weeks. Right. Um, yeah. It's just, yeah. Uh, it, it is a. Um, I, I thought that was pretty powerful, and, and you know, e- each nation is going to do their own strange things. But you know, th- this isn't something we haven't seen before. I mean, just look at like World War One, where every nation was sort of you know going along with these these arcane plans that took everybody to disaster. Well, but see, I I, th- I think it would have worked better for me if nobody had been planning to attack the aliens because that's ridiculous but right. humans had started that's fighting a, among a Hollywood them. movie about aliens you have to attack them <laughs> well yeah no that's my point but i mean but if if the humans had started fighting among themselves as a result of suspicions and hysteria caused by the aliens i think that would have been more persuasive to me than we're going to attack the aliens which you are like i can't possibly imagine you have any chance of success right. oh i think i think that the humans were squabbling a little bit because of the aliens arrival i i think that was a pretty pertinent point yeah I, I felt like the stakes were being raised by humans yeah. it's <laughs> like you know if 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 one nation sort of they're all sort of working along the same lines if, if one person gets out ahead of the pack you know that that's certainly a threat that you can't have amongst other um you know one one nation really can't have that especially if, if you're suspicious of all the people around you Right, no, my point is just don't fuck with aliens. That's my point. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> everything else everything else is, is fine. Um I just wanna I wanna ask you guys, I mean, this movie is so sort of beautiful and contemplative for most of it. And like I said in the trailer, which I know you know, I know Carol didn't watch, but there's helicopters and soldiers running around and stuff. I wonder if a lot of people who showed up for this movie did not get what they they were expecting Independence Day and were kinda like, Well, what is this? I don't know if if anyone. Um, I don't think so. I I think that the the trailer made it pretty clear that this was a different sort of alien invasion movie because you're you don't see. I mean, you, yes, you see soldiers, but you don't really see like the uh, the battle L.A. type soldiers where you see a lot of action is right in the forefront. 
Um, that said, you know, I, I wonder, the movie has had a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes so far, and it's gotten really good reviews. But now that everybody else is going to see it, I wonder, I haven't looked at any of the reactions yet because it's technically coming out uh, today. Uh, but I, I would expect that there will be some people who go in watching it and then say, like, what was that about? And, you know, I, it, it's definitely a, a type of film where it will go over some moviegoers' heads. And Chris, what do you think? Well, for what it's worth, so I saw it last night in the theater, and the the people that were sitting a row behind me, uh, as the as the end credits began to roll, <laughs> the only reaction I heard from them was, the the woman turned to the man and said, "Okay." <laughs> so at, at that point, I got up and fled because I didn't want to hear them say whatever they were going to say next. Because I was so like uh, impressed by the movie that I didn't want to hear them diss it. But I got the feeling that they were about to diss it. Right. Actually, I would have been riveted to my seat to to hear what they had to say about it. And uh, because I saw it in New York City, I heard some you know film critic bloviating about style and camera shots and shot length and such so i fled oh. that conversation <laughs> right, 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 right. yeah but i'd love to have heard what an average person would have would have had to say because you know we are we're science fiction readers mm-hmm. we all mm-hmm. have familiarity with this novella so so we kind of know what to anticipate and we were satisfied so it would be kind of interesting to see it with a person who comes in cold now, can we talk about the camera length and the shots? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and I'm, I'm only half joking there, but I, it was a really gorgeously shot film. I I, I love the the they, there was a lot a heavy emphasis on sort of the the camera panning over some very blank surfaces. It, it looked very minimal at points, um, from her house to the the landscape mm. and uh, the the even just the texture on the the alien ship. Um, and I, I really, I'm really attracted to that type of cinematography where, where you really just take, you take it very slowly and you have these very wide shots with the people right in the middle. Um, the, the, the director also did a lot of shots like right on her face. Like she was centered right, right in the middle of the, sh- of the shot, um, as things were going around, around her. Um, and there's sort of a nice parallel with, with her face and the, um, uh, there's this one gorgeous shot where she sort of looks to the side and, in front of her is the alien um, sentence, and it's sort of uh, in an arc around her head. I, I just mm. I thought it was gorgeous. I, I I I will watch any film that this guy directs because it, they are um, he's got a really good eye for the camera. And, and honestly, this makes me very a little bit more excited for the next Blade Runner film when that comes out next year sometime. Um, it's like that one film that you, nobody wants the sequel to, but now I'm I'm even more and more intrigued from the cast to now basically just based on the director who's who's helming it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really like the editing of this film because I I thought it it it, it could have been very jumpy because you're jumping frequently from past to present mm. to future, or past future or whatever. So yeah, uh, I the transitions could have been really jerky, but they just kind of flowed for me. And as for the the camera work, I think there was a lot more handheld in the flashbacks or flash forwards. And, you know, that kind of made it a little off-putting. Like, hmm. I mean, looking at it as somebody who knows what's going to happen, I thought, hey, that's an interesting choice to make the past, you know, not 
very perfect. I, I I didn't notice that, but I I, have, I really want to see the film again. I'll have to keep an eye out for that. What I really liked is that anybody who's not going into into the movie who's read the book, I I think that they would go ahead and sort of assume that. Uh, I, I liked how they they sort of segued the flashbacks. They sort of framed the the flashes as her past. Mm-hmm. And then it's not really until the end that you realize that it's really not the past, it's the future that she's seeing. Um, I, I really like how they did that, especially for somebody who's going into the movie cold. Yeah, well, I mean, because I read the story, but I read it 10 or 12 years ago. And so I remembered yeah. what it was about, but not, uh, I wasn't, it wasn't so form, forefront in my mind that I was watching that I, I was thinking in those terms. And so just when, when you realize that the the drawing that the little girl did of, her dad and the woman doing a TV show about animals, that that's Jeremy Renner. Like, even that, that even like, I was like, oh, yeah, right. That's what the story's about. Wow, mm-hmm. that's so cool, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I, I it does work really effectively, I thought, to sort of fake you out that, that, you've, you, that you've watched her backstory when it's actually her future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I liked about having read it so long ago. I, I only just reread it yesterday, but I, I read it. As, as you did 10, 12 years ago. And, uh, I liked that I was kind of remembering at the same time as I was experiencing it. Uh, it kind of worked with the, the theme of the film. Yeah. I read it for the first time about five or six years ago. And then I read it the day before I went to see the film. So I, I had the story really fresh in my mind. Um, but, you know, in a way I was, I, I was, uh, nervous on behalf of the filmmakers because I was just like, yeah, I mean, part of what's so cool about the story is that Ted manages to trick you, the reader, into not realizing it's it's the future either. I mean, it's it's about halfway through the story that you start to suspect, oh, wait, this isn't her past. I mean, I, I, I had assumed in the story it was her past too. And I was wondering how they would be able to do that effectively on film and and make it, you know, I mean, they used different tricks and and techniques than ted used because it's film versus print but um but they 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 totally succeeded at it they i I thought they did a really really great job but uh, actually the best thing about the novella to me was the fact that these these scenes that take place that you think are in the past that are actually in the future she uses Mm -hmm. he uses future tense Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and it's right there on the page future second person yeah right right yes uh and you don't really realize it until you get to the you know to the kind of near the ending yeah yeah. so i hope that was great because it's right there it's future (laughs) tense so yeah so does anyone know why they changed the title from story of your life to arrival or at, at what stage that happened no but there's also another movie called the arrival yeah it's the charlie sheen one right with the global yeah. warming aliens yeah uh-huh. yeah yeah and uh... the um i know with arrival they had changed the title a while back um i remember because i had i had read about it for or i had written about it for io9 and um yeah it was back in june i think that uh one of the things that was always sort of interesting about this film is that it had been really talked up a bit but it was not really on anybody's radar, even into the middle of the year, which I would have ex- sort of expected to see like a trailer earlier this year, um, you know, before June. But it wasn't until June that they basically said, um, yeah, we're, we're switching it up from Story of Your Life to Arrival. And it, what it reminded me of was, uh, Edge of Tomorrow, 
um, which the original book was All You Need Is Kill. Um, and I, I think that what it is is it's basically just, um, uh, it, it's, it's basically just a little bit more appealing for, for audiences. Um, story of your life just doesn't say, doesn't really scream out alien invasion movie, uh, whereas Arrival sort of does, but not in the alien invasion way. It's the, the NPR version of alien invasion, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, even, even, I'm looking at the original article now, and, and even, even back in June, they, they didn't say when it was going to be hitting. They just said that, yeah, it's going to be called Arrival, and it'll be coming out at least sometime later this year. So. Well, like you said, it seems to be, I mean, you said it's like 100% or so on Rotten Tomatoes. The Atlantic critic just said it's the best movie of the year. I mean, it's talking about in contention for Oscars now at this point. Uh, so, yeah, like we were saying, it's just so exciting that, you know, a, a Ted Chang short story can mm-hmm. become this sort of a movie. Yeah, it looks like it's dropped down to 93%. What? <laughs> Those <laughs> bastards! But, but yeah, it, I think it's my favorite movie of the No, year. but Andrew, I continue so to live in a time when it was 100%. <laughs> yeah, it, it was before. I, we, we saw it. When, we saw it before, before all the haters came in. <laughs> all right. Yeah, but I, I think it's my favorite movie of the year so far. Uh, not positive, but I'm pretty sure. I have to go back and have to think about it. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah, I have topping to... Doctor Strange, and I I really like Doctor Strange. I, I'm trying to think of what movies I've seen this year. It's been sort of an off off year for me. Just I haven't really seen anything that's really excited me um, but this this one is definitely is by far the best one at least one of the the better science fiction builds out there um, yeah. and it's definitely one of the better films I have seen this year although and it, I, I'm going to put a caveat on that is that Rogue One is not out yet so I not can't right. say that it's my favorite <laughs> just yet just judging from the trailers alone Rogue One is going to be a good one <laughs> I wouldn't know I haven't seen the trailers <laughs> well all right, well, cool. So, yeah, so I'm really excited that a Ted Chang story can be turned into a movie like this. And now I want to, I want them to turn lots of other Ted Chang stories and lots of other short stories by brilliant authors into movies. But so I think a lot of people are going to be learning about Ted Chang for the first time uh, as a result of this movie. So I want to perform a public service and just recommend what other Ted Chang stories they should go check out after having seen this movie and reading Story of Your Life. So, uh, I don't know if you guys, do you guys have any couple suggestions for what Ted Chang story you think people should go check out next if they haven't read him before? I think Exhalation is a great example of what a good writer he is. He, he basically just, just, he creates a cosmology and defines it and, and just turns it upside down. And Exhalation is about, um, a scientist, uh, how do I explain this? I think he's trying to get to the bottom of why some clocks have struck too soon. And and then in doing so, he has to discover the nature of, well, reality. So. Right, but he, he himself is some sort of steampunk robot, the right, scientist. Right, Uh-huh, yes. Yeah. Uh, and as are the rest of society. That was actually the first short story that I had read by him um, yeah. back uh 2014. Um and uh, yeah, I, I read it. I was really amazed by it. And I, I um, when I wrote uh, interviews for Lightspeed Magazine, I actually interviewed him for that story. Um, it was, it was, yeah, that's one I definitely recommend. The other really great one is um, the uh, life cycle of software objects. That's such a painful story, though. 
it is, but it, it, it is a amazing, amazing story. It, it, I, I absolutely love, love it. And I, I reread, reread it not too long ago. And it was just, it's still, it is a powerful one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, the short answer is all of them, but the, because <laughs> they really, they really, I mean, the thing about his, his writing is his stories, while there are certain common elements that they're so different one from the next, and yet they're all so brilliant in their own ways. And so, you know, I mean, I think different people are going to find different things that they'll identify with or really, really like and in, in different stories. I mean, the two that I always think of first, well, apart from Story of Your Life, which is definitely one of my favorites, but the other two that I've always really loved is um, Division by Zero. And again, it's so weird that I like that story so much because I am so not a math person. And that that is basically just a, a story that is all about mathematical equations and, and different you know concepts in math. And yet, I, I think it's the same reason that I, I really liked... Um, the, the novel, The Three Body Problem that came out last year by, uh, Sixin Lu. I don't know how you pronounce it. Yep. Okay. Um, because again, I think what Ted can do and what that author can do is they can take these super complicated mathematical and scientific, uh, concepts and distill them in a way that not only, you know, can my defective brain g- grasp them in a way that makes me just see how cool they really are, but it's, you know, th- these concepts are somehow integrated seamlessly into a, an awesome story where the character development and the and the plot and the and the sort of themes that he's exploring all just play off of each other with with those those mathematical equations in science. And and again, Division by Zero is, is another harrowing story to read, but I think it's fantastic. And and the other one, again, super harrowing, but I, I love the story. Hell is the absence of God. I don't um, think it was that harrowing. I thought it was actually kind of funny. Which one are you talking about? Hell is the absence of God. It certainly had comedic elements, but I mean, it's pretty grim and sad as well. I mean, I don't want to give too much away about the story because it, it, but, um, yeah, I mean, for yeah, sure, okay. yeah. for sure, I, I laughed throughout it, but it was also sort of like, you know, sad on a whole other level or, you know, a sort of a deeply sad in a way. But, but, you know, it's funny. You were talking about other stories that could be, translated to film. I don't think Division by Zero necessarily could, but I, I would love to see him translate Hell's the Absence of God. I mean, because that would certainly be cinematic. Right. I think I mean, all, all the different ass off throughout the entire film. All the visitations would be yeah. super, you know, the, the special effects guys could go to town. The fortunate thing is that we have basically almost all of Ted's stories in one volume. So it, mm-hmm. it's not like it's hard to catch up with all of his stuff. And just because he hasn't produced a ton of stories, um, it's, it's really great just to go out and just read that whole collection. Um, and I, it's definitely a book I would, re- I would highly recommend to anybody. I, I know it was recently re-released, um, by the, by its publisher. They, they just issued a new version of it with the movie art cover. So hopefully, hopefully a lot of people will see that and pick it up and, and just get just sink right into it. Well, yeah, I was going to say that Ted's entire body of published fiction is, I think, fifteen stories, and ten of them are available free to read online. So it's very easy to to get caught up with his work, and there's pretty much nothing I can think of that would be a better use of your time. And I've really found that Ted Chang is a good author to recommend to people who don't value science fiction to show them like, okay, no, this is serious stuff that 
is of unquestionable literary and intellectual merit. You know, I mean, it's, it's just the, the quality is so overpowering and undeniable. Have you been able to convince people to read science fiction by giving them Ted Chang? Yeah, I have. I would say so, yeah. I'm a very persuasive person, Carol. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> well, no, I conducted an experiment a few years ago when I worked when I wrote for uh, Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine show. I... Right, but see, Carol, the mistake you made was using one of my stories. That was a big, oh. <laughs> a big mistake. <laughs> Should have so used Ted Chang. <laughs> so you remembered that experiment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because you showed it to, like, your some relative, and they just they were just like, this story is a waste of time, basically. <laughs> No, I was I didn't show your story to my relative. I showed a different story. <laughs> and she's an English teacher. And an amazing writer too, by the way. But yeah. <laughs> another another thing that Ted's written that a lot of people cited as one of their favorites. And I, I mean, I love everything he's written, but I would say if anything, it was it was one of my least favorite of his. Although I also, you know, that's it's just a matter of degree because I, I still like it but it's that one um what is it the merchant and the alchemist oh what game. i love that story you don't yeah. like that no story? i d don't get me wrong i'm not dissing the story i loved it i'm just saying i love most of his other stuff even more than i like that one but i know a lot of people cite that one as one of their all-time favorites um and i and it's great it's a great story too that one i think was published or, or it, i think you can find that one on uh, as an e i don't know it's one of the few yeah. ebooks i've ever read you can find it, and uh, yeah. I, and I agree with you, Chris. I really do because I liked it a lot. But I mean, I think Exhalation is just the pinnacle, as is uh, well, story, of, uh, story of your life. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm actually apart from any other reason, I'm really glad we had this uh, panel because I think I, I've just realized that one of the only stories of his that I haven't read is Exhalation, and now I'm going to run out and do that. And I haven't read Division by Zero. Oh, okay. Exhalation is available on Lightspeed, so. Okay, yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, so Chris, I mean, like, yeah, Merchant of the Alchemist Gate is one of my favorites, and that's one that I think would translate really well to film. Um, And then, yeah, my other favorites are Story of Your Life and Exhalation, and then I also really like Liking What You See, a documentary, which I just think has a fascinating premise, which is that... Actually, I don't know that one either. Oh, okay, so, so the premise is that there's apparently a real condition you can have as a result of brain damage or or something like that, where you can see people's faces and recognize them, but you've lost the ability to gauge whether they're beautiful or not. Um, And so in this story, there's kind of like a community of people who all have done this to themselves through technology intentionally and have done it to their kids as well. So, So these kids have grown up not understanding, not being able to judge whether who's attractive among them. And then the community kind of breaks apart and they have to go out into the world and deal with what it means to to be judged for your attractiveness for the first time. And, uh, and so like the, the main character is, is this beautiful young woman and she's never known that she was beautiful before. And like it's just explores what, you know, what that's what, what sort of what her experience of that is like. And it's like the title suggests the documentary. It's sort of in this documentary format where you just hear from different people in this world about what they're, what's the, the upsides and downsides of being able to gauge attractiveness are. And I just think it's really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. So uh, what was the name of that one again? It's called Liking What You See, a Documentary. All right, cool. Anything else, anything else anyone want to say about Ted Chang's stories? 
go read them. Yeah. <laughs> all of them. I, I still haven't read all of them. I, I'm, he's an author. I, I, I will sort of visit here and there. Um, uh, but it is definitely probably one of the best short story writers out there right now. It's producing. And I, I think it, it, I think it, it's a nice, it's nice that he spends so much time working on each story. He's that you, they're really crafted and they just really, uh, <laughs> they really just come out as these great things. Yeah. I mean, I, I this kind this probably is going to sound a little bit corny, but I, you know, apart from, you know, a lot of his stories do have this real emotional resonance, but I, I actually have, I have had the experience reading his stories, particularly when I read them for a second time. Um, so I'm paying a little bit more attention to things like structure and whatnot. I've actually had these moments where I, I, as a writer myself, like, you know, I'll suddenly sit back and almost feel myself having like an emotion, like getting choked up, just being so in awe of how he's managed to accomplish something he's been able to accomplish in a story, just structurally or thematically. It's just like, I, I mean, it, it's brilliant. I mean, it's something that's so elegant and so just artistically done that, that, you know, sometimes I just have to sit back and marvel at it. And, and that he's really that good of a writer. It, it's interesting because, you know, he's not a full-time writer, you know, his, his right. day job is he's a, a technical writer and, um, you know, that you can't make a living writing a sh one short story every year or two, no matter how good they are, no matter, no matter how many awards they win and so on. But now that they're starting to get turned into movies, I wonder if he could, you know, mm. become a full-time fiction writer. And, you know, because I think if you write a short story and it gets turned into a big feature film like this, you know, you're making pretty good money. So Probably, probably not to live on. I, I would be very surprised if that was the case. Really? Because, uh, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, gone, are, gone are the days where you could live off of the proceeds of the yeah. film. Well, I, I, you know, I don't know what sort of deals and, and what were made in terms of Ted, but I do remember reading articles that this, when this story was sold at auction at, I think, the, was it the Cannes Film Festival? It broke the, the record for the, the amount of money that it, was, that it went to. Oh, I don't remember. If you, if you Google it, you'll see what I'm talking about. But it was like, it was the 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 largest sum of money paid for acquiring this film in the history of the of the festival. Wow. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily trickle down. No, that, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, so I don't know what that means for Ted, but at the time that it, it, it broke the record. I mean, I, I studied screenwriting in L.A., and what I seem to remember, I, I've never sold anything for a movie, so I wouldn't know, but so what I seem to remember hearing is that according to Writers Guild rules, uh, if you if they base a movie on your work, they have to pay you one percent of the budget of the film. So, okay. if it's a hundred million dollar film, that would be a million dollars. I don't know if that's actually true or not, and but that's still not enough to live on. In this to live on, a million dollars. Carol, you give me a million dollars, I will live on that like you wouldn't I, believe. I live in New <laughs> York City. <laughs> And maybe maybe my perception is skewed because of the, the price of the rents around here, but yes. Well, I also live in New York City, and I don't have a million dollars. But if you want to help me out, you can go to patreon.com slash geek. <laughs> yeah, it looks like the, fil the film cost $50 million to make, and it um, Paramount paid $20 million to buy it. To distribute it in North America and China, so that, you know that's a, that's a good amount of money. Yeah, but, go Tad. Um, yeah. I mean, fil fil film residuals certainly don't hurt, um, and I, I just it's it's still not it's probably just not a, a, as reliable 
a way to make a living is just to live off the residuals. So, mm. but hopefully the um, there will be more movies based on Ted Chang's stories, and it'll boost him into the spotlight a bit more, and it'll it'll sort of just reinforce that he's just, just a really great author. Yeah, I mean, after this, you kind of think he's got to become the next Philip K. Dick of Hollywood, you know? And I hope so. Maybe he. I don't know. I just think it would. I don't know if he even wants to write full time, but it would be nice. It would just be nice for me to know that people could do that writing short stories. I mean, I think that would be really cool. Um. All right. Cool. So, uh, yeah. Any? Any? Are Are we done? Any final thoughts or anything? Uh, my final thought on the film is just it was go see it. It, it and and go see it cold if if you haven't read the short story and, and you can always pick up the short story again um but it's definitely one of the very few examples i can think of where the where the movie is maybe not as good but it is comparable to the short story in a lot of ways um you don't see a lot of adaptations that are like that and it is even if it was uh not based on a film it it is a really good science fiction film and it, it's definitely up there with like gravity and moon for me, which are, are some of my favorites. All right, cool. Uh, Chris, final thoughts. Uh, I'm just going to echo what, what's, what's been said. I mean, see the film it, it, and read, read his fiction. Uh, there's really not much more I can say than that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I was, you know, I went into it with high expectations and for the most part, my expectations were, were met with again only minor quibbles. I think they really captured the the underlying essence of the of the story. Okay, Carol, final thought. Yeah, I agree with Andrew that it's not often you get to see a movie where it is as good as the source material and and it is as good as the novella. Almost no, no. I, I guess I take that back. I think I had a little more of a, an emotional response with the novella, but still, it was a, a great adaptation, and and I really enjoyed the hell out of it. And it's up there with my favorite science fiction films uh, of recent years, which are Moon and The Martian. Hmm. All right, yeah, so I guess our takeaways are this is a novella, not a short story or a novel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to see that I think every all of us have made that mistake. Because <laughs> it doesn't feel like it. It, it doesn't feel like it. It's yeah, a, it's I just a... read I just read it and I can't believe it was a novella. It, it, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I blew right through yeah. it. Um so yeah, that so that's a takeaway and also don't fight aliens and send me money. <laughs> I think are the main takeaways from this uh, discussion. And so yeah, so I think we're gonna wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Chris Savasco, Andrew Liptak, and Carol Pinchewski. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that was our panel. So, big thanks again to Chris Savasco, Andrew Liptak, and Carol Pinchevsky for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including St. John 17, LRM 77, and Tate Williams. Tate writes, I can't even begin to describe all the great fiction and nonfiction I've been introduced to through this podcast. But more than that, it's a smart, rational, even-tempered analysis and often criticism of science fiction and fantasy as literature, philosophy, and culture. David Bar Curley is an extremely talented interviewer. He's well-informed, always does his research, and more than anything displays an inspiring level of genuine appreciation and curiosity about his subject matter that is not easy to find. He listens and wants to learn, 
and Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listeners are always rewarded for it. So big thanks again to Tate Williams for that great review. I'd also like to give a special thank you to Bill Gibson, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.